Hey everyone, welcome back to On Point. This episode, I sit down with Greg Poole to talk about tuning processes and how he gets uh, target archery accuracy into his bow hunting setup. And that was really the, the motto of, of this episode. And I wanted to try and find out some different things that maybe I could do to my tuning process to always try and better what I'm doing and get more accuracy out of my gear. And uh, it's a great conversation. It went about two hours and I really hope you guys enjoy. So outside of that, I appreciate everybody listening, and uh, if you have any questions, be sure to reach out to Greg. He also does all the interviews at all the big uh, archery tournaments and stuff like that. His is Bow Junkie Media. You can find him on Instagram. You can find him pretty much just Google Bow Junkie Media. He'll pull right up. And outside of that, hope you guys enjoy the episode, and I will see you in the end. Bye. I, I kind of wanted to pick your brain on getting um, more accuracy out of, out of a bow hunting setup. I don't know which, mm-hmm. if you had anything in mind that you wanted to cover well i mean i i i don't know we we can talk about anything i mean uh you know i'm not one of those i don't even i don't even really study for my own podcasts i just basically (laughs) have conversations that are recorded and so for me it doesn't really matter what we talk about i mean when i started shooting in late 99 it, it was only hunting and a buddy of mine down in klamath falls gave me a 145 pound Oregon Windwalker bow with 2419s, shooting it with fingers. <laughs> and if, if you think that's sketchy as shit, uh, I can remember pressing this bow with a come along in a doorway. <laughs> yeah, that was, that was as unsafe as anyone could ever do anything in life. Um, obviously, I survived, but, you know, I was a hunter. That was, that was what we did. I had, fu- farming buddies down in Klamath Falls, Oregon, and, you know, hunting was the thing. And so got into, you know, that this would be in, you know, probably late 99, early 2000 and started to like it. And obviously the 145 pound Windwalker with fingers isn't the recipe for accuracy. And so I actually traded an old gun cabinet I had for a Conquest II. And yes, the Conquest too, where you put the credit cards into the corner of the limb pocket to shim everything and keep it from moving. Um, and so I started doing that. And then I can remember some friends were like, hey, we're, we're going to this tournament down in Wairika. And I'm like, tournament, shmernament, uh, I'm a hunter. You know, I mean, back then there wasn't really the social media there is now, but the attitudes was the same. You know, I was like, what? tournament. I'm not a tournament archer. I'm a hunter. And so finally they, they kind of convinced me that, Hey, look, being a better hunter is being a better shooter period. And I was like, "Mm, yeah, okay. I can get down with that. And so the, (laughs) the very first tournament I, and I've told some people this story, but the very first tournament I ever went to in my whole life, unmarked, we step up and I shoot a zero (laughs) full blown sand over its back gone. And, you know, we all laugh and I was laughing and crying on the inside. Um, cause I'm an extremely competitive person. I played a lot of basketball and I'm, I compete. doesn't matter what it is, business checkers, dominoes. It, <laughs> I, I want to compete. And so, you know, we finished the day and I'm like, that hurt my soul. Um, but it was literally my first tournament ever. So first arrow in the first tournament, for score in my whole life, I shot a zero. And uh, we go back about three weeks later. They're like, there's, an, th- there's this other tournament. And I'm like, all right, let's go. 
first era with I'll never forget it like it was yesterday. It was one of the um, back then it used to be called a critter factory. You know, the targets they shoot in Redding and now it's Phil Raglan and his family and stuff. And uh, I was first up. It was a it was a grizzly on all fours. And man, I studied this thing like you could ever like you couldn't imagine. And uh, shooting pins, drew back, had the old uh, Fletcher release, the old hand finger wrist rocket. And man, I remember bearing down, bearing down, and I sent it, and that bitch hit the dirt <laughs> about four yards in front of the target. And I was, and I literally, no one spoke this time. Like literally no one spoke because they could see I, I wanted to rip trees out of the ground. And I, and I literally remember turning around and I told these guys, this is, this is rubbish. I said, so I'm either going to get really good at this or I'm quitting because this sucking is not for me. So I need to get good at this because that's just how I am. And so, you know, I was really blessed. And, you know, th this is something that I think a lot of people take for granted is the, the archery environment that you come up in. And I don't, you know, grow up is, is one thing, but dude, I didn't even start shooting a bow till I was 30. Really? So, yeah, no, I, you know, I was a product of the seventies of a single mother. I mean, <laughs> yeah, there was no guns. There was no arching. There was just getting in trouble. And so, um, you know, I was a latchkey kid and, uh, yeah, that's what it was, man. My mom was in college and doing her thing and it was the mid to late seventies and <laughs> that was the cards we were dealt. And so, um, but, but I was really blessed because in the town where I lived, uh, there was a great archery shop, AMA archery ran by Maurice. Um, everybody up there in Oregon probably knows who Maurice Auday is from AMA archery. Um, unfortunately he just closed his shop down there, but, uh, I had Alan Ruddick who was, one of the one of the most talented shooters I ever I ever saw. Um, he taught me a lot. I had Bob Gentry, the only finger sh compound finger shooter that I watched regularly shoot 300 Vegas rounds and 60x five spot rounds with fingers and a compound bow. That's hmm. a level of tuning you can't even imagine. The Neelys, Tom and Thomas Neely. Um, I became friends with Cabe Johnson over at Spot Hog, mm -hmm. uh, and then started shooting all that stuff with Gary Curl and Sean Lakin and Ben English and. I mean, dude, we would, we pounded, I mean, we hit, we hit it hard. And so I was very blessed to come up around people that knew so much about archery. And immediately I remember the very, <laughs> I, I remember the, and I know people are going to be like, I can't believe you took that shot. <laughs> but I remember once I started learning the, in, the, the, the intricacies, or I call them the intimacies because once you come to understand them it really makes your relationship with archery more intimate because now you feel more of a connection and I remember once I started really learning this stuff and I would literally detune stuff just to see what it would do but I was hunting and uh, just outside of Klamath Falls and and I had hunted my ass off all morning I was a hot sweaty stinky mess went back as I'm walking back to my rig at like 11 a.m after hunting for five and a half hours there's a mule deer standing there looking at me and i'm like you asshole <laughs> um and it was it was 49 yards i had the whole it, i don't know if you remember the big giant bushnell rangefinders. i had one of those and i ranged him at 49 yards head on and i shot him right down the esophageal hole right 
it was a frontal shot, 49 yards. And I shot and it literally went in that hole hmm. and right up to the knock, turned around, ran, and I got to watch him do the flipperoni. And it was that moment for me where I was like, holy shit, being a tournament archer absolutely makes you a better hunter. And from that point on, I started, you know, I started upgrading my, my hunting gear so that I didn't feel like I was being hindered by, you know, my equipment. And, you know, back then, I mean, look, in 2000, followways, <laughs> that's cute. Um, you know, we had the, we had the, uh, the, the, the tusk rests with the two spring tongs. You know, yes, exactly. Meshing with tension and, you know, messing with the angle and all that. And, and so, I mean, th there is so much that a hunter, you know, and look, I'm not saying that every single person listening, that's a hunter, you know, needs to go to a tournament or they suck. That's not the case. But, um, if you look at some of the most legendary hunters we've ever had in our sport, in our industry, and our sport is a sport and our industry, I mean, Randy Ulmer is one of the best 3D guys ever. He's not bad at hunting. Um, D Darren Collins, he's won a lot of professional tournaments. He's now a senior. He's getting ready to double up. He's getting ready to do the, the, the 28 with a bow for the second time. I'm not sure what you're referring to there. I, I'm not. What do you mean there? So, so the super grand slam is killing all 28 North American animals with a bow. Oh, the grand slam. I know what that yeah. is. And not a lot of people have done that. Darren Collins is almost getting ready to do it for the second time. That's insane. Right. And he's the most low key. He's, he is just, he's, he is a, the biggest low key gangster you will ever. He's, he's the man. And then you look at guys like Levi Morgan, mm -hmm. well, obviously being the goat of 3d, He's a great shot. He's won Reading, Indoor Nationals, et cetera. So, so for me, you know, it, it was one of those things where I immediately started recognizing that um, whether you want to consider yourself a target archer, whether you want to consider yourself a 3D guy or a spotty or whatever, practice makes perfect. And the one thing that a tournament allows you to do, and it's not equal, of course, but you can do all, everything you want at home but it doesn't prepare you to shoot that, that animal, hence buck fever. And it most certainly doesn't prepare you for being on the line in Vegas when they say first arrow for score. <laughs> and literally you can audibly hear a thousand butt cheeks slap together. <laughs> I mean, it is, it is a different kind of thing. And so that pressure, whether it's in Vegas or Reading, even local tournaments, whenever there's something on the line, that pressure is the most direct correlation to buck fever. And so the knowledge of, of, of knowing how to tune your bow and execute the cleanest shots is going to allow you to more humanely harvest whatever animal it is you're going to go after. Hmm. Well, I, I know. Um, so did you kill one your first year, a buck your first year ever picking up a bow? Hell no. <laughs> how many years did it take you to get it done? Uh, it was the second year. Okay. It was, yeah, it was the second year. Um, we won't talk about how many arrows I lost the first year. Um, yeah. same boat plenty. here. <laughs> yeah, it was plenty. And so, you know, that was the whole thing was no, hell no. I didn't kill a deer my first year. Absolutely not. Not even, it was not even close. I mean, I, I don't think I came within 
literally, I don't think I came within eight inches of killing <laughs> a deer, huh. you know, because I was just, let's be honest, I was just getting into it. And while I had this four pound, 10 inch, um, Bushnell rangefinder, you're not strapping that to you in an effective manner to get out. I mean, you damn near need an SKB case to carry it. Right. And so it was literally trying to judge yardage without knowing what the hell to do and yeah, shoot at it and miss a lot. And that is, you know, that was what hunting was back then. Um, now, once I decide, you know, once I whiffed on my first ever arrow for score and my second tournament first ever arrow for score, I start. I, I had worked for the railroad at the time. I was an engineer. And so when I would stop my train, I'd set the air, whatever, tell the conductor, honk the, you know, beat me three times on the horn when it's time to go. And I would take that Bushnell rangefinder and I'd leave the train and I'd go out in the woods, uh, usually in between um, Klamath Falls and Bend or Klamath Falls and Keddie, California. And so I would just go out walking and I would range trees and just practice. And then when I would hear the horn beep, I'd head back. Um, and so I did get somewhat proficient at judging yardage, but certainly no Levi Morgan type crap. That's on another level. But, um, but you know, studying the things that I had to do to be able to, you know, hit what I was aiming at, not just at a target, but at, um, you know, in hunting as well. And that, that first deer that I got, uh, was certainly that, and it was not that, that, uh, facing 49 yard down the pipe shot either. That was not my first deer. Um, my first deer was, was literally a little forked horn that, <laughs> that with my hands, I could literally touch both sides. So it was, it was a massive 10 inch spread. Um, That's funny. and I was, and I was tickled to death with it. Um, I hit it center mass, not too far back, not too far forward. I, I was shaking like a dog shit and razor blades. Um, it was, it was, an, it, it, it was a rush, like really nothing I had felt since, you know, maybe shooting free throws in front of a bunch of people. But yeah, um, but yeah, man, I mean, being able to apply the knowledge that you learn in target archery most certainly is going to make anyone a more uh, lethal hunter for sure. Just hearing you talk about your beginning, just I was uh, going through my my desk over here, my work desk, and there's a small little DVD. And as soon as I found out, I knew what it was. It, my brother was carrying a camcorder, and I said, like, camcorder back then. <laughs> and uh, my best friend was there, and, and he was hearing about all these bucks I was missing. But I got something that changed the game, and it was a rangefinder. <laughs> and uh, it was an old Nikon. And, and um, that was, the, I think, one of the first year I shot at. I think it was the first year I shot at with the rangefinder. And uh, we got it on video of me um, telling the camera, you know, I got, I shot this deer and, and uh, you know, I, I missed it at 45 and then I ranged it for the first time at 70 or 70 or 69 or something like that. And then I ended up smoking him and, and um, it was just a fuzzy horn spike about that big. Right. But the shit eating grin on my face. You couldn't wipe it off, man. And it was just, it's just a memory. I was going to post it on Instagram, but it's almost too personal. Like, it just, I kind of want to keep that one close to the chest because it's such a special moment. But like from where I was then not knowing shit about tuning and then just picking brains and getting lots of good and bad information from guys who didn't know what the hell they were talking about. Um, you know, it was just, I shot, I, I missed six bucks that year before I bought that range finder. 
and it was never left or right. It was always high and low because I didn't know the range. I didn't know what, what, you know, degrees and cuts were. I didn't know anything. And just to where I am now, and I rely on a range finder. I just, if I, if I lose an animal because I couldn't range it, I'd, I'd rather have that. Maybe I can get back on it than, you know, I'm willing to lose an animal because I didn't range it. Um, Absolutely. Like a shot, not, not lose an animal because it's wounded, but it's just, that's just where I'm at. And I'd like to be better mentally uh, capable of range finding, but I just proven to myself too many times that, and I, and I did what you used to do, man. I used to go around range stumps and try and calibrate my mental range finder. And it just, it's funny because the only actual tournament I ever got second in was an unmarked. Mm-hmm. But I practiced so, so, so much with my buddy that was shooting trad. And then, like, I kept uh, shooting high on the first, like, five or six targets. And he's like, you're adding five yards every time. He's like, you're telling me the yardage, and then you second-guess yourself, and then you add five. And then that's why you're barely hitting top eight or top ten or whatever. He's like, just follow your gut. And so I did the rest of the day, and I shot pretty good. But I feel like a lot of guys, it's a sense of pride of not using a range finder. And, and it's almost like um, like range finder shaming. You know, like, I, I don't get it. I don't get right. it. If I, if, if I have something that's going to make me a more effective, you know, and I will shoot farther than most guys on animals. Cause I, I don't know. It's, I, I feel like maybe my woodsmanship skills aren't good enough to where I still need to take those just being right. straight up. But, uh, I don't mind taking a 60, 70, 80 plus yard shot, but I've proven to myself time and time again that I can do that. And then I'm not just rushing a shot on an animal. I've been watching the animal for five, six minutes and he's only took two steps. I feel pretty comfortable about taking that shot. Right. You know, right. Um, it's all scenario dependent, but, uh, I just listening to you. It's just like, man, kind of gives me, uh, makes me smile and gives me confidence. I'm like, well, if that's where Greg started, man, I mean, I'm not on the wrong track. <laughs> no, ab- absolutely not. And I mean, you brought up a great point and that is situational awareness. And, you know, look, I, I've, I still get, I still get, you know, I still get messages about my hundred yard heart shot on that scimitar Oryx down in Texas that my wife filmed. Uh, not like we were out there filming. She just happened to be sitting there with a, with, with a phone. And so, you know, and I literally, we were going to dinner in a couple hours and I didn't want to chase this some bitch. So I was like, I'm Ricky Bobby. I'm either shooting it through the heart or I'm going to miss and literally stroked it dead center in the heart at a hundred. And so, but, but the problem that a lot of people have today is they apply their ethical standard to their particular shooting ability. And on top of shooting ability, you know, there's another factor. What like Aaron Snyder, one of my good friends, dude shot a Wolverine with a trad bow at like nine feet. Okay. (laughs) I'm never going to be sneaky as Aaron Snyder ever. Aaron can, Aaron could pull out his uh, upright bow and shoot some at a hundred yards like me. I'm not sneaking up on stuff to nine feet like Aaron Snyder. I'm, I'm, that's not my, that's not me. That is, you know, one, I'm six, seven, you know, 265 pounds right now. And that's not how I'm built. <laughs> and so, um, you know, but as these people apply their standards to everybody else, you know, it's like, look, I got a, I got a big Ford truck. It'll do 130 miles an hour. I am never going to drive that truck that fast. I'm not, it's just because it can, doesn't mean I should. And that's literally the way I feel about, you know, some of these people with just because your bow will shoot that far doesn't mean you're good enough to shoot that far. And 
Do I look down on someone if they want to sneak up to 10 feet? Nope. Do I look down on someone who's, who is going to take a hundred yard shot? Nope. But it all comes down to situational awareness. Do you think Aaron Snyder would have snuck into nine feet on that Wolverine if the Wolverine was looking at him the whole time? Hell no. <laughs> the only reason he did that is because he, he could sneak in that close and it didn't know he was there. Well, for me in that scimitar oryx, that some bitch knew I was there <laughs> and wouldn't let me get any closer. So guess what? Full send. Situation was right. There was no wind to speak of. It was point on, no bubble. It was, everything was perfect. And so, but in today's world, it just seems like, you know, pe people want to project their limitations onto other hunters. And I don't necessarily understand that simply for a couple reasons. Um, number one, you don't, you don't know their true shooting ability. You don't know how good their equipment is tuned. You don't know how much they've practiced at that particular distance. You don't know the situational awareness aspects of what happened in that moment. I've seen there's, I'll put it this way. There's, there's more evidence out there of people missing at 20 yards than there is a hundred. So now what? I mean, a lot more people miss at 20 than miss at a hundred. Cause generally speaking, the guys that shoot at a hundred know they can generally make that shot. And yes, animals can move at a hundred animals can move at 20. So the whole argument of, well, what if the animal moves? Okay. And what if the tree you're in blows a little bit and you shoot it in the butthole, <laughs> then what? So there's always those what ifs, but, but for me, just like anything else, you know, I consider this my trade. And, you know, while I was never the professional that was cashing $20,000 checks, that wasn't my calling. And like, I've always told people, if I could shoot a bow as good as I could tune a bow, I would have been cashing big checks, but that wasn't, that wasn't my role. That, that wasn't my calling. Um, that's not to say I sucked. I was certainly above average, but I'm not Levi and Jesse and those guys. That's, that wasn't my lot in life. And so, you know, as we as an industry and, and we as a sport, you know, see these people that try to project what they feel and what they think they know onto other people, you know, it's, it's harmful and they don't ask the questions. They just say, that's unethical, but they don't know the whole story. And so for me, that's, you know, that's kind of right. an important aspect. I mean, I've certainly, don't get me wrong. I've been in hunt camps with people that have four different kinds of arrows at five different lengths with seven different kinds of veins. <laughs> and I'm looking at them and I'm like, uh, one, I don't even know why you're out here hunting, but number two, please don't shoot anything past like 20 yards because <laughs> You know, and that's just the reality of it. And right. it's an inconvenient truth. Um, and it's something that that archers generally like to uh, what, what I call shame blame. Meaning if, you know, like I posted a video the other day of some guy shooting in, uh, in, in an archery shop in Las Vegas. I don't know if you saw that on my social media. <sighs> Boy, this guy <laughs> is drawing his bow back about four inches and shooting it. Hmm. Not joking. An adult is drawing a compound bow about four inches and shooting it repetitively time and time again. The shop owner asked him five times if he could help him. And this guy literally refused five times and said, no, I don't need your help. I'm doing it right. Hmm. And the shop owner's like, 
I'm, 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 I'm fairly certain you're not doing it right, but you're not necessarily a danger to other people. You know, it's not a, I mean, I've also posted videos of people sky drawing and all that kind of stuff. And Done so that. been there. Exactly. So, you know, when I say it's, it's shame blaming, it's people will come on and try to shame people and blame them for sharing things that misrepresent and hurt our sport. And I didn't, I don't know who that guy is. I don't care who he is. I didn't tag him. Facebook recognition, you know, Facebook facial recognition didn't, didn't tag him. But that is what, that is what dealers have to have to handle all the time. And yet we have a constituency among us that when you point out the worst of our real life issues at archery shops and in the woods, other people want to blame you for pointing that out. And it's like, wait a second, don't kill the messenger. These dealers are having to deal with some crazy, crazy stuff. We've all seen the pictures of people coming in with the arrow rest mounted backwards on the bow and, <laughs> you know, all kinds of crazy stuff. And so, you know, it's just one of those things where no one's perfect. I get it. Um, but when something happens that so misrepresents our sport, um, I, I think it's important to validate what the dealers have to go through and what our sport has to go through, um, you know, by, by pointing it out. And that's just my opinion. Hmm. So how do you go about getting somebody, I, I don't know, corrective actions here? Cause I shoot next to people all the time at the range and, and around here locally, a lot of the guys watch the YouTube, cha my YouTube channel and stuff. And so locally, like, you know, when I go there, I'd say probably 70% of the time, like, Hey, you're that guy that has that bow review or whatever. And then, then they'll start picking my brain and stuff. So I, I never really offer advice unless, I, unless it's asked, um, I'll just do my own thing and bullshit and talk hunting and stuff. But, um, until somebody asks me, then I typically don't offer opinions. You won't see me on forums all the time telling, you know, somebody that they're doing it wrong. Right. And I always, I always refer to it is, you know, there's, there's the foundational principles and we look at that as a racetrack, like a running track. And you have all these lanes inside that running track, pick your lane, as long as you're inside those principles and, right. and, and to further that I I've always, to me, I've always contributed accuracy um, down to duplicating and consistency. How consistently can you duplicate what you just did? You know, is your tune good? Yeah, that needs to be good. But as a shooter, can you consistently duplicate your shot process every single time? And I, and I just feel that leaves, that leaves a lot of breathing room for somebody to kind of find their own way. And, and it's just, it's not telling them what lane to pick. It's just sending them, you know, down, make sure they're running the right way inside that track. I mean, is there, is there a certain way that you go about it or is there anything that, um, you could elaborate on that a little bit? Yeah. Well, I mean, so the, and your point is, is absolutely correct. And the analogy that I use in this is Larry bird. Did Larry bird have the prettiest <laughs> jump shot in the world? Hell no. But guess what? No one ever told him to change it. Guess why it went in the hole. Larry Miller, his jump shot was even uglier <laughs> went in the hole. No one ever told him to change that. So when I see, you know, when I transfer that methodology over to archery, Jesse Broadwater, statistically the most accurate archer in the history of our sport for a long time shot with a super bent front arm. Anybody ever say anything about that? Rio wild and Chris Perkins, they lean way back when they shoot. Mm. Anybody going to tell them to knock it off? 
you're, that they're doing it wrong. Tim Gillingham is literally the most famous puncher in the history of our sport. He has, he has products named the hammer. <laughs> and I can remember back in early two thousands when he used to get upset that people were calling him the hammer. And I'm like, Tim, they're making a brand for you. Embrace, Embrace it. it. Yeah. <laughs> and his Facebook page was Tim, the hammer Gillingham. So, <laughs> so it's, you are exactly right. It's not so much about the form as it is the, the, the repetitiveness. Can you do it the same every time? And so, you know, when I see people not doing something according to the textbook, um, I just, first of all, I look at the result. And another great example here is uh, my homie uh, Cam Haynes up, up there in Oregon. There's people that are like, oh, well, his backhand and his release hand holding it up like that and and putting his finger, that's just not the right way. Well, how many animals do you see him whiffing? Not when he's many. out shooting at his, yeah, when he's out shooting at his yard at 120 yards, popping balloons and, okay, what do you want me to tell Cam about his form? He does it the same every time. There's nothing wrong with it. Who cares? Most of them are just jealous he's able to do it without his shirt on. That's <laughs> let's be honest. That's the real problem. And if I looked like Cam, I'd shoot with my shirt off too. But but so, and his his form is fine. There's nothing wrong with his form. But people always want to be able to give. Here you go. I got literally this story just popped into my mind. We were at, I think it was Mechanicsburg, know, like four years ago, five years five years ago or so. And me and Spankwater are walking around. Pre- practicing and he's in his ghetto shorts and his freaking cut off t-shirt and you know you wouldn't if you didn't know who jesse broadwater was you, you whatever <laughs> so we're on the practice range and he's shooting and i shit you not the lord strike me dead right now if this ain't true a guy walked up if you, if you ever talk to jesse ask him about this a guy walked up who was watching him shoot and said hey man You'd be a lot better if you stopped punching that release. <laughs> Jesus. And Jesse being the gentleman, I'm I'm like, I am made of insults at this point. Like <laughs> they are they are flowing through my mind like the New York Stock Exchange ticker. Like I'm ready to, and Jesse's just nice as he can be, is like, oh, okay, man, thanks. I appreciate that. And the guy leaves and Jesse looks at me and I'm like, you're a better man than me, bro. <laughs> because, you know, and it's like, so people always want to give someone advice if they think they see something that they don't do. And that's what it is. And so whether it's Larry or, 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 uh, you know, any of the, the basketball players or, you know, any of these archers who are some of the best we've ever seen uh, or great hunters or whatever it may be. People always want to give advice, one, whether it's asked for or not, which is a huge problem. And number two, whether they look at the entire picture. So for me, when I see um, someone, uh, you know, doing something, whether it's a draw length issue, whether it's a D loop setup issue or a peep height issue or, you know, a bow hand issue, I'm just naming some of the things that I will actually speak up about if asked. I generally look at people's bows and see all kinds of shit I would change, but I'm not, I'm just not going to, I'm going to be like, dude, your knock height looks like it's a little bit off. No, I'm no, I'm not going there, but, um, I will generally, first of all, I'll look at their attitude just to be honest. 
if, if they are frustrated, uh, if I see them making multiple adjustments and looking for return downrange, meaning they made an adjustment and they're expecting a different result on the target. Um, I'll watch that for a couple for a couple ends. And then if I see them getting frustrated in some way, I, there's times, not every time, of course, but there are times I'll be like, hey man, what's going on? Well, I've already watched them shoot enough. I probably I already have a list of things in my head that if it was just the two of us, I'd be like, let's get that bow in a press and let's get you dialed here. But that's not always the case. Because number one, it's usually at an event. Or it's they're shooting for score, they're shooting. So you don't want to go changing a bunch of people's stuff there. But but I will look at stuff like that. And and if I see them getting frustrated, there's there's a couple big things that I will point out, like uh gripping the bow. If their bow hand is if they're holding on to it like to save their life. I'll be like, all right, look, so I'll explain what rotational deflection is and that when you grip the bow like that, you are actually inducing torque and not allowing the bow to mechanically function the way that it wants to. Depending on your cam lean, you can derail your bow. So I'll help them with that. Um, another one, this is, this is probably the one that I've done the most, is your release is too long. And I will generally help them because it doesn't change their draw length. It doesn't, well, technically it changes their draw length, but it doesn't change their, their pin gap. It doesn't change anything other than allow them to execute a better shot. And so I'll be like, hey man, you know, you're, and usually it's with a wrist strap. I'll be like, hey man, you know, the, the, the trigger on that release is way at the end of your finger. We need to shorten that up and kind of get that finger around there so you can use some back tension to execute that shot rather than just using the tip of your finger you know, Tim Gillingham does that and he does it well. So I'm not saying you can't do it, but you know, that's one of the biggest things that, that I will help folks with immediately. The other thing that that does is it does tighten up their form a little bit and it makes them hold better right off the bat because you can't, a bow that's too long, you ain't holding that bow well at all. Um, you know, a bow that's super short, you're not holding well either, but just that little minute adjustment of helping them tighten up that release helps them hold better helps them execute better shots. And just those two things are going to give you a tighter group, no matter what you've done with the tune of the bow. And that's just a fact. Um, I'll look at that. Um, if it's a situation where I see something that is uh, grossly out of line, um, I've seen people come to full draw and one cam is a half inch off the stop and the other cam's hitting. That's how far out of time their bow is. Hmm. And I'll be like, Hey bro. <laughs> uh, I I got some good news and I got some bad news <laughs> and the, which one you want first, homie, because that's a serious issue. Um, that affects knock travel, the tune of their bow. You can't just, you can't just straighten those, you, you know, you can't just twist and untwist cables to get them cams even again. Cause now you've affected the, you've affected the entire uh, way that the cams are functioning. You've affected the knock travel. You've affected the draw force curve. You've affected everything. Well, that's a complete rebuild. But in some cases, I will be like, hey, man, I don't normally do this, but Yoshi's fucked up. <laughs> um, and so, you know, one of the other ones would be peep height. If I see s- someone shooting and they are literally touching their chin to their chest to get down into their peep, I'll be like, yo, uh, we can fix that right now. And people will be like, well, how do you fix that? Well, I, I carry an axle with rubber on it in my, in my 
release pouch. Hmm. This is, I'm going to say a disclaimer right now in front of everybody. Just, just don't do this. I'm just going to be honest with you. Just, just don't. Um, those of you that are out there, there's going to be some of you listening that are like, hell yeah, I know what he's fitting to say. I do the same. Okay. But if you've never heard of this, don't do it. But, but I carry an axle and, and I will tell somebody, dude, your peep is so low. You are, you are really affecting a lot of things. So what I'll do is um, I, will, I will make sure that, that they're at a yardage that is confident for them, say 20. Mm-hmm. I will then slide their peep up until it's comfortable. I'll draw the bow, put the axle on the cam so that it lets down the tension off the bow or off the string at least. I'll take the string off. I'll put a twist or take a twist out until the peep is correct. I'll put it back in. I will release, you know, I'll draw it back, let the axle fall out. Their peep is now in a comfortable position and they've only added or subtracted one twist in their string. It's not going to affect anything. Then I will gang adjust their sight until their 20 yard pins back on. Hit the range, homie. You're good to go. Hmm. I've not affected your speed. I'm not affecting any of that. There could be some parallax stuff. If you get into some, I mean, we could get into some hardcore conversations, but with at this level of assistance, you know, Jesse Broadwater is not going to move his peep a quarter of an inch and expect everything to be good out to a hundred for up and down hills and all that. But at this level, it's life changing. And so, but, but that's what I'll do. I'll, I'll move their peep, uh, adjust it with a twist or so, and then gang adjust until their 20 yard pins back in. And then their speeds close enough to the same that they're not going to notice a difference from 30, 40, 50, 60 yards. I want to get your input on something that I've, I've been, rattling around in my head and there's videos on it where you know nose pressure on the string you know will change height and because you're pushing the angle of the peep down so you're i forget who has the video but you can literally see what it does while it's on a hooter shooter um and then also what face pressure does but for me shooting a slider in in doing it at extended yardages um how would you suggest having a peep set up to where you're not burying your nose in it at 20 but then you're not coming off and then having to change your anchor too much at say 100 115 yards right well uh you know this is something that that i used to somewhat struggle with until um i asked jesse broadwater one time i said where do you set your peep now for indoors of course we all set our you set your peep at 20 it's 20 you're not shooting anything else. It's 20. You want it to be as comfortable as possible. But for outdoor, what you're talking about is what's the middle of the tape. And so let's say that, that you have a sight tape that goes from 20 to 120. Most people would assume that the middle of that tape is at what yardage? 60. Right. However, if you measure the distance, that's not true because from 20 to 60 is a hell of a lot closer together than from 60 to 120. Right. So like when, when we shoot field archery or reading, we will literally blind set our peep at mm, 65, 70 yards. Meaning we will go outside to that distance and we will set our sight on that and we will draw and open our eyes and set the peep until our most comfortable static position is that yardage generally 65, 70 yards, because mathematically distance wise, you are, you are not going to be in the middle. That's just a fact. And so what ends up happening is, and you know, obviously at Reading, we're going out to a hundred 
for hunting, it I'll generally set it a little bit higher if I'm going to be shooting out at longer distances. But what ends up happening is, is when you do that, the, the true measured distance from 20 to where you have your peep centered for just drawing it back is a, is a shorter amount than farther out. So what ends up happening is when you shoot something at 20, 25, 30 yards, you have to crunch down just a little bit to get into your peep, just a little bit. However, once you get past your zero, let's, let's say your zero is 65. When you get past that and start shooting, shooting 80, 90 and hundred yards, you don't have to raise your head. And I just raised my head up as though people are going to be seeing me, but um, <laughs> you know, uh, then, then you're not having to raise your head up to, to, to keep up with your peep. As your sight goes down, you got to raise your head up to triangulate your peep to the 100, 105 yards. So basically what we're doing is we're mitigating the amount of head movement we have to have because you have a lot more room for That was on Do Not Disturb. I'm not even Uh-oh. kidding. Rookie mistake. My, my <laughs> iPhone is haunted. Literally, it's on, it is on silent and do not disturb. It's no worries. So, my apologies. Um, so basically what we're doing is we are, you know, at 20 to 30 yards, 35 yards, you have a hell of a lot more room for error. So we, we will either cheat the release up our face a little bit or crunch our head down a little bit to keep our center and execute those shots because they're closer. Dots are more generous. Once you get out to, you know, 75, 80, 90, hundred yards, there is no forgiveness. Um, it's, it's a much harder shot. You have to have a much cleaner execution. Your centering on your peep and scope has to be better. And so basically that's what we do. I know a lot of people that are like at Reading, they'll set their peep on 50 yards because they shoot 100. So zero to 150 yards, that's where I shoot it. And then literally their, their peep height has them raising their head once they hit about 60 yards. And then from 60 to 100, they struggle. And so that's the way I set my you know, that's the way I set my peeps, obviously indoors, it's just at 20, but, but that is one thing that helped me tremendously with my long distance performance performance was, you know, once I got out to those distances, not having to raise my head and come out of my form to stay centered in my peep. That makes sense. And I've always wondered about that. And, and I, I've, I've heard from other guys that have had the similar ideology where I'd rather be, um, more accurate at longer range and less accurate at closer range because I can make more air and then still hit the 12 or, or the 10, you know, like, but I need more accuracy at farther range is what they're saying. Absolutely. And, so. and it's accuracy is a relative term. It's consistency. Hmm. Um, Cause the bow is just as accurate and you're just as accurate. But Good if point. you can't consistently release, if you can't consistently repeat your form, just like we just talked about with shot execution and whatnot. If you can't consistently repeat it because you're either crunching too far down up close or you're raising your head too far up at longer distance, you're not going to be able to repeat that every time. So what we're doing is it's basically a trade-off. We understand we have to either slide our release hand up our face a little bit, or we have to crunch down a little bit at 20, 30 yards, but those dots are generally more forgiving. So it allows us to be consistent there, but allows us to be even more consistent and perform better on the more difficult shots. Makes sense. I want to go into a a video that I saw. This is the first time I ever saw any of your content. I think you were shooting in an office or something. You were shooting at a Vegas three-face, and uh, you were shooting three different 
handheld style releases and you were showing the differences of the way the releases um can you get into that because i've always i i've i've had um my last setup not this setup but my last setup i could shoot my my wrist rocket and my um hinge and i didn't really have to change there was a little bit at like 80 yards it might have been a couple inches low um with difference between but um I, I i could pretty much transfer over and get the accuracy with both releases um, mm-hmm. this year i'm not really getting that as much but i'd, I'd love to hear um what you were doing there and, and what your results were because it was really fascinating for me to, to see the difference on just the way the claw would come out or the open release would come out right so what that was was that was um i had been this was i don't know what three four years ago yeah i don't even remember when it was <clears throat> but it was a while ago yeah i had been getting a bunch of questions about d-loop torque and how important it is. And I dude, I don't run a Kendall Woody, Chris Perkins, two and a half inch loop. <laughs> I run and, a short one. Right. Me too. And for those of you wondering, I have literally watched Kendall Woody, one of the best shooters I've ever seen, shoot his bow and his release was so long, it would rotate forward <laughs> and it would catch on his, on his rest. Huge loops, but I run a, a small loop. So what that was, was I'd been getting a bunch of messages about it, asking my opinion and so I use the same release. Um, now, if That's you go from, okay. yeah, so, so if you go from release to release to release, there are several factors that can cause variances, which direction the jaw opens, uh, drag on the linkage, type of hook that it's being, if it's a single or a double, um, you know, how clean the finish is, et cetera. So there are variables there that are unavoidable. But what I was doing was showing and at the time, it was the, uh, the the Jesse Broadwater fulcrum release. And what I did was, is I basically shot my normal shot. And I just set the camera up in front of me, and it was just me. And it was in in the, it was through some of the um, empty rooms here at, at AAE. Um, and so I shot my shot, my normal, ugly old shot, uh, snatched up another arrow and replicated course my hand didn't quite twist as much as jeff hopkins did but i did the best i could um (laughs) but i i literally rotated my pinky as far to the top as i could to replicate jeff hopkins uh style and shot and i'll tell you what holding was it was a different the bow didn't hold the same i'll tell you that right now Hmm. um and then the last one i did was more of a uh pinky down or pinky straight out so my hand was perfectly level which almost no one truly does. Um, and I shot the third arrow and I'm damn near blind. So I really had no idea where they were. I knew my shot had broke a little bit low, but, uh, whatever. And so I grabbed the camera, walked down and basically I had three super X's, um, the Jeff Hopkins style shot pinky up way at straight up. And then the, the other shot with the pinky kind of straight out, were literally like in the same hole, um, half shaft, six o'clock X. And my particular shot was a low X as well, but it had broke a little bit, but a, a little low. But, but the intent there was to tell people that if, and this is a huge if, capital I, capital F, you have your knock set and your D loop set up. And I don't want to use the word properly because there's all kinds of ways to do it. But if you have it set up in its most forgiving way, 
that basically I don't worry about that kind of torque because it's not going to affect as much as you would think. Um, you know, at the time I was shooting, I, I will say this at the time I was shooting a Hoyt, um, spiral cam, which is a, what I consider a charged system, meaning at full draw, that cam system has a lot more tension in it than other systems do. And for any of you that are wondering what that means, simply next time you're at a shop or around a bunch of buddies, bring their, bring their bow, whatever their bow may be to full draw, and then grab a hold of the bow with your bow hand and just kind of rock the bow back and forth and see how loose it feels and do that to several of these bows. And when you get to certain kinds of bows with certain kind of cam systems, the evolve cam from PSE and the spiral cam from Hoyt, they're tight. Meaning when you go to do that, there's tension in the system so that they don't have a whole bunch of that movement. And so that certainly helps if you're shooting a really high let off bow or a cam system that doesn't have a lot of tension at full draw, I'm not sure that, that that test would have turned out the same hmm. simply because there's not enough tension in that system at full draw to maintain its left and right knock travel. And that's basically what we were talking about. And so obviously for this test, it was three super X's. And I just said, look, I don't worry about not, I don't worry about release torque on my system because I got my D loop and stuff set up right and I'll leave the rest up to you now. And I actually just helped a guy the other day with this who was having horrendous, he could not get rid of his, his right tear, could not get rid of his right tear. So one of the very first things I do whenever I get these questions is I tell someone, take a knock, just a knock and put it on your string and come to full draw. And tell me what the what the knock does. People are like, the hmm. shit are you talking about? Well, what happens is, is if your D-loop and your knock point aren't proper, and I will say proper this time, you are inducing torque on that knock at full draw. For this gentleman, his knock was pointing damn near straight out to the left at full draw. Interesting. So what do you think that's doing to the arrow? It's pushing it that way. Bam. And so it's going to push it that way. It's going to correct and you're going to get a jacked up right tear. And so he had a knock set top and a knock set bottom. And, and I preface all this stuff, brother, because <laughs> I get all the hate mail and I just know how it goes. And so um, it's just one of those things where I just say it um, because I have to say it. And, and basically uh, it doesn't matter if you have a knock set on the top, a knock set on the bottom, or just one on the bottom, or just a loop for all I give a shit. That's irrelevant. That's all I shoot's a loop. Yeah. So now once I figure out my tune, I will generally tie a knock set on the bottom in case my loop ever screws up. I don't lose my tune. However, hmm. um, so what I told this guy to do is I said, you just take a razor blade, don't fuck up your string, and cut off that top knock set. And then slide the top of the loop down and do that test again. And he did it. He had to, he had to slide the top part of the loop up and down a little bit, but he got to the point where in his draw board, he could draw it back and the knock stayed straight the entire draw, the, the entire cycle of the draw. Hmm. So now he's not inducing any, any 
any axis torque, up or down, left or right. He's not inducing any torque onto the knock during the draw cycle. Therefore, he's inducing less issues to the arrow as it's being fired. And it took care of about three quarters of that right tear. That's crazy. Well, so, I've, I mean, back when I started shooting bows and you had those alligator prongs that you're talking, I was shooting a Carousel, uh, PSE Carol Intruder um, with the, uh, just the old spring loaded prongs and uh, knock pinch would float your arrow up off the prongs. And so, you know, I obviously yes. it has a huge effect and that's before I knew anything. So, and that's because I'd shoot axis and then I'd, I'd break all those and then I put a beam in on there and just a larger diameter. Right. So, right. and that's when you'd have to put your finger and just keep it there until you're at full draw and let exactly. it rip. But um, I, I, I actually messed with mine a little bit this year because I was having um, some tuning stuff and I was working my way through it and I was just checking all my stuff. And then I'm like, okay, these, um, I bought uh, aftermarket knocks for the arrows I was shooting and they were just a little bit different than the knocks that came on the arrow. And uh, that seemed to be part of the issue. And so I needed to widen out my D loop a little bit and, and, um, you know, I've had instances and maybe I do need to start using a bottom knot or a top knot or whatever, because I've had instances where, uh, bef this was the last straw that broke the camel's back for me getting into tuning and working on my own stuff was I missed an elk about a foot high and I had a perfect hold on this elk. I'd never been steadier, 280 inch five point ivory tip, just nice. drooling over it. And I still see it there. And, um, I think it was, uh. 60 yards and I had it right where I wanted to hit and that arrow went about that far over his back and I'm like what the hell and about every 15 shots I get back to camp every 15 shots I'd get one that would float about that high and then um I'm like all right and it took me about an hour and then I grabbed my d-loop and my bottom was moving and then on that one I shot that elk I must have pushed the knock down on the bottom and just right. anchored low and just you know it's like if I would have had some sort of knot on the bottom maybe that would have prevented it well, right. And so, you know, I will usually put on just a loop for all of my tuning. For all my tuning stuff, I will just put on a knock in case I need to slide the entire system up or down. But once I get my bear shaft, you know, and, and that's something I can get into as well as not just the bear shaft tuning, but, you know, everyone talks about bear shaft tuning, but that is, you know, pa paper tuning is macro tuning. Bear shaft tuning is micro tuning and line tuning is super tuning. So bear shaft tuning is not even the end all be all for a lot of us. It's just one of the steps we take and we can get into that if you'd like. But, yeah. um, and so, um, what I do is I'll have a, just a D loop on, I'll do all my tuning until I get, until I literally get to the, to the bear shaft in the middle at 50 yards point. Then I will put on an arrow, I'll tie on a small knock set, less than eighth of an inch underneath the arrow, and then I'll just slide my loop back up. Um, and then we get into the, then we go down Alice in Wonderland's rabbit hole, hmm. um, and, you know, into the wild child stuff. Um, but I always do that because my fault, your fault, no one's fault. You screw up that loop in the field or a tournament and you got to replace it and you don't have a knock set on the bottom, you're, you're done. You you are done. Um, you can't replace that loop and have any sort of realistic expectation of hitting an animal at any sort of distance um, because you're not going to get it as close as you could if you had that bottom knock set. And so that's why I do that. And uh, 
You know, that, that is, there have been some instances where bows have some horrendous knock travel that I've had to see people tie on top only knock set, but that gets into some stuff that, that we won't get into today. But, um, for the most part, I've had the best luck using just a knot on the bottom. Um, if you're going to do a knot on the top and the bottom, which is totally okay, you just have to do this. You just have to do the same test uh, where you just put a knock on and draw the bow and make sure that you're not inducing torque onto that knock because that knock is then inducing torque onto the arrow. Makes sense. And that's just what it is. Hmm. Well, I do want to get into your tuning stuff and I definitely want to hit on veins and stuff because you're a vein guy. Um, mm-hmm. and I, I, I'm always looking for different ways to tune. And, and this year I, I was playing around with my tuning process this year. I've just, I love trying different things. And so, um, I'd love to, love to hear how you take a, a bow and, and, um, or start with the arrow. And, and I'm basically same set of mind as you. And, and granted, I don't have near as, as much of the experience as is in, in the tuning, but for me, like I've, I've just started saying, you know, the paper is just the beginning. You know, a, mm. a lot of guys just want to shoot through paper and say, bolt hole, I'm done going to the woods. But right. that, yeah, I see that all the time. And I get that question quite a bit. And, um, and my first thing is, well, that's my starting point. And, you know, I even came out with a, with a three-step process on YouTube and, and it's, it's just kind of a snapshot. It's not even, it's not even what I would do today, um, to be honest with you, but, um, give me, I'd love to hear yours. And, and then, um, if there's anything that I do differently, I'd love to hear your opinions on it and see what, what I could change or maybe improve on. Sure. So, so for me, you know, when it comes, you know, it, it's no different than someone who is competitively shooting. And when I say competitive, I'm talking about hunting and target because I build those bullets the exact same. Uh, I tune those bows the exact same, but if you transfer this over to rifle shooting, the guys that are competitively shooting at 2000 yards, they're not buying their ammunition at Walmart at all. Their ammunition is the most finely tuned projectile that they are humanly possible of making from the, from the, from the casing to the primer, to the powder, to the bullet itself, making sure everything's concentric. They are doing things most people would never even dream of, but that's why they hit stuff at 2000 yards. Mm. So, so for me, uh, whether it's hunting or target, the first thing I will do, and let me say this, I don't give a shit about a grain or two. If you're dropping pieces of paper down inside your arrow and you're grinding on points, so they're all within a 10th of a grain, good on you if that's what you got to do. But I'm going to tell you something right now, three grains at 50 yards goes in the same hole out of a hooter shooter. What now? So that's it. And so um, if mine are within a grain or two, I'm Gucci. That's fine. It means it's not going to affect a damn thing. And so I will take my arrows. I'll I'll weigh them all to make sure that they're all relatively close. Um, I will then spine test all of them on a Ram, uh, spine checker. It's not to AMO standards, but I don't care if it's to AMO standards. I just want to, I have literally not with my Easton's, but previous company, um, I would find arrows that were a hundred spine off in my dozen. Really? Yes. Even with like a axis. No, not Easton's. I've never found this with Easton's. Okay. Cause I'm, 
And I'm jealous because you have the Ram. Uh, I, I'm getting one of those. It's on my yep. list. And, and I'll be doing um, a huge experiment here later. But And I want to incorporate the Ram into my aero building process because I feel like that would save me a bunch of time. But Oh, it does. No yeah. question. Uh, no question. I got to get one. <laughs> yeah. And so, so I'll weigh them all, um, make sure everything's fine. Um, I will spine check them all to make sure I don't have any anomalies. And like I said, with Easton's, I've never found an anomaly. Prior to Easton, I found a lot of anomalies, um, up to a hundred spine weighed the same, weighed the same was a hundred spine off. Hmm. Well, that arrow goes in the trash. Um, that arrow is not, that's a coal arrow. That's not even a rabbit arrow because my dumb ass would grab it on a world-class animal and yeah, no, it's not happening. Um, so once I spine check all of them, um, depending on like with the axis, you know, I will then check straightness. I'll check straightness in the middle, which is usually perfect. I mean, let's be honest. It's easy to get an arrow straight in the middle. One thing for your listeners to understand is when you buy an arrow, that's say one thousandths. First of all, that's checked with a laser down the middle. Right. So when you're checking it with a Ram, it's actually two. So if you have a one thousandths arrow, when you put it on a Ram and it's two thousandths, that's in spec. Okay. I didn't know that. I'm glad I said yeah. that. They're checking down the middle with a laser to one side. So if you have a dial gauge, a dial indicator on one side and you're rolling the shaft, that is now double. So one thousandths is two. And the other part is, is it's any 28 inch span of that arrow. So if you get arrows from the, from the factory and they're 32 inches, four inches of that arrow on either end can be trash. Right. And I'm guessing you roll it and find out, cut the trash end off either end. Yep. And I give no Fs where the label is. Right. I could care less where the label is. The label doesn't, they don't put the label on any particular end for any particular reason. I'm glad you said that. That's just where it goes. And so that's why you see a lot of guys that shoot a lot of your pre-preg arrows now. And pre-preg arrows are are widely taken over. Easton's now doing them. Gold tip, victory. What do you mean by a pre-preg? I haven't heard that term. So pre-preg is the construction process of your gold tips, victories, black eagles, uh, uh, a lot of your Eastons. And the telltale sign of a pre-preg arrow is, is it, it doesn't have any decoration. It just has a label. Okay. But if you were to scrape off the label, you wouldn't be able to tell. But if you look at a Carbon Express, it's not a pre-preg. So you can have decoration on the arrow. It looks totally different. Well, and the reason, like if you if you look at gold tip, you see Tim flex these arrows and hold them there and still straight or damn straight or whatever their their telltale, you know, marketing slogan is at this point. Um, that's what your best golf shafts, that's how your best golf shafts are constructed. That's how your best fly fishing poles are constructed because they are damn near indestructible. Hashtag damn tough or whatever gold tips thing is these days. Um, And if constructed properly with enough material, can't quote that enough, enough material, a pre-preg arrow will not hold a bend. Hence why some brands of those arrows run super stiff and super heavy. Hmm. That's why you can put them in a press and hold them bent for a day. Makes sense. So, and so pre-preg is is it's, it's tough. It's crazy tough. Um, and the, but you do run into some issues with spine variances, uh, and you know, spine lumps. Like you can take a lot of pre-preg arrows and put one end on your leg, hold the other end. 
bend it in the middle and roll it and you will be able to feel the lumps on your leg. Hmm. And so, but that is the most, that is widely becoming the most common practice. And there's a lot of, you know, not, you know, let's just put it out there. Victory and gold tip are made down in Mexico. Nothing wrong with that. Easton is making the only pre-preg arrow in America, period, end of story. And a lot of the other ones are pretty much coming out of factories in China or factory in China. Frank, it's not his real name, I don't think. Anyway, <laughs> um, and so, but, but that is the preferred method there. Um, so yes, I will, if I'm shooting an arrow like that, if, whether it's an axis or whatever, um, I'll check the middle for straightness and then I will check the, uh, whichever end up to four inches is the straightest for the knock end because the knock end is the propelling end. And that end is the most important for straightness and concentricity because that's the end being propelled. You can, you can straighten out broadheads and spin inserts to get the front straight, but the knock end is super important. And so once I figure out where, where I need to cut front and back, I'll mark them and then I'll go back. And it's a tedious process because you don't just get to set it at 31 and a half inches and zit, 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 zit. Right. You know, you gotta, <laughs> you gotta set it up for this cut and that cut and spin it and flip it and this cut. And then I'll move around the right, the, the Ram indicator. And then I'll check everywhere I cut to make sure everything's good. Then I'll use the G5 truing tool or actually you wonder what works really good is those little um, sanding blocks that come in all the Easton arrows. I've got, uh, I don't know how many of them, uh, 50 of them in my room. Those work so good. Mm -hmm. I've got you one actually to... glued to my table. Yes, exactly. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. That's exactly right. That is exactly right. And you just, as long as you keep the arrow straight, yep. you, it works. That can phenomenal. be a big if sometimes though, especially if you're drinking a beer. <laughs> <laughs> right? Exactly. And so, but that is a great, and it takes off a little bit more material. So it's a little quicker. It does. The G5 one, probably a little more precise. It's a pain in the ass. And I feel like it's too short because I, my thumbs start hurting after a while. And <laughs> right? Yeah. Well, I drilled a hole through the middle of mine and I drilled it to the <laughs> table so it doesn't move. Ah, but, see, ah I need to do that. <laughs> yeah. And so, um, actually I got another one for you. I have the, um, so you probably, it sounds like you probably use a pine Ridge spinner. Um, I don't I know. use the, I use the Ram, the, the Ram yeah. spinner and everything. Oh yeah. Okay. So I have the Apple one. It's not as good as the pine Ridge and it's like three times the cost. And, uh, <laughs> and, but you can take one of those biscuits, those sand biscuits, you can put it against the, uh, end of the, the screw bearings mm -hmm. where, where you roll the arrow and it's square. And then I just square it like that. And sure. it, it is freaking slick. And I've actually wanted to make an arrow spinner that has an attachment where you can put the biscuit on there and then just, there you go. oh man, that would be <laughs> slick. You can have that one if you want it, but <laughs> it's one of the million no. little ideas I've had, but um, exactly. yeah, that's, I, that's just funny. Cause I've, I've done that same shit. <laughs> yep. And then, and then, so once I get that done, um, I will move to the knock end and generally speaking, depending on for hunting, I like to just use a knock in the back of the arrow. I don't like to use a bushing. It, it's less work for me. It's yes, you will tube arrows way easier, but when I get my hunting bow dialed, I'm generally not shooting groups anyway. Same here. But, it's hard, hard to tube an arrow when you're shooting in a different bullseye. Exactly. And so, or <laughs> unless you made a big mistake. Yeah. And so, <laughs> right. so, so I'll get the knock in dialed first. If it's an X10 or a target arrow, indoor arrow, um, I will, sw sw you know, swap around the Ram and I will generally take, like if I'm using X10s, I'll take three dozen pins. 
and I'll put them in a big pile for one dozen X10s. And I'm not saying I use them all because it's a plug and play thing. A, a, a pin knock adapter that doesn't work in one X10 might work in another. Hmm. So it's not, it's not like if it doesn't spin good in this arrow, I throw it away. And so I will go through there until I find the perfect pin knock adapter that spins perfect in this particular shaft. And I'll rotate it until it's perfect. I'll take a sh Sharpie and then I'll mark so that when I put glue on it, I can put it back to the right spot and verify that it's back. So I'll, I'll get that part done. Um, and then I'll generally, I like to fletch my arrows before I put the point in them because then it doesn't give me any issues when I'm using the AAE uh, fletching jig because it's plastic, it's light. It's only like 26 bucks, but it's a true one degree and you can put it in a lunch bag, put it in your backpack and take it anywhere you go to go hunting. So I use it for that. Which one was I, that? The, it's called the Fletch 3 from AAE. Okay. And it's just a true one degree. It does come with a, a, it has a three fletch in it. It does also have a four fletch adapter now, but it literally breaks down. It weighs nothing. And I'll just take a sandwich bag, break it down in, into its components, put it in a, put it in this baggie, throw in a handful of veins, some glue, some wipes and put it in my backpack. That's it. So when I'm hunting, if I have to do any fletching for any reason, I got everything I need. Hmm. But if you have points in them, it's not, it, it, you have to hold it down or it'll kind of get a little tippy. So I'll generally fletch my arrows without points in them first. And then when I get done with that, I will take either my front component system or my insert and I'll put those in, make sure everything spins true. And I will actually do dry runs. If I'm using the Easton's with the hit insert, I will screw a field point into it, slide it in, and I will check to make a, a good field point people like one I don't shoot. So don't send me any hate mail. Like, oh, field points bend. Yeah, no, I have a brand spanking new perfect field point that I never <laughs> shoot just for this. And then I can rotate that as needed before I epoxy it in. Um, Interesting. If, I've never done that. Yeah. If I'm using a, a standard insert on the end, um, I'll kind of do the same thing, but then I'll put the dial indicator for the RAM just on the end of the component. And as I spin it on the RAM, I will spin that until it's perfectly concentric because so it'll spin perfect where in your process does the um because yours has the spine checker you can see you can see like i don't know the backbone of the actual arrow or whatever you can see where it has that stiffer spot right. um do you flush fletch along that at all is there any point where you're actually using the backbone of the arrow to fletch uh no um i usually de determine that in the next um couple like for for target archery um, and for some hunting applications, depending on the arrow, um, I will put the point in first so I can shoot every bear shaft through paper, but it just depends. It depends on some other variables. Yeah. Um, like for aluminums, I don't need to do that. Right. So I'll fletch those first. I yeah. I what I was care. wanting to do with the Ram is, is potentially get rid of the knock tuning, um, uh, portion or, or, or cut down on the knock tuning portion. Not going to happen. See, see, that's what I was hoping would happen. <laughs> nope. I, it's just but, so time consuming. <laughs> yes, it is. What the RAM allows me to do is coal arrows before I have to waste the time shooting them. So I, I out of an axis, I may have one or two. I'm on um, average that I may, that I may coal. And with my better building process, when I do really take my time, I might have one. Right. Right. Okay. I, I, on the axes with the match grades, I'll usually have one or two that I'll take a sh Sharpie and I'll just mark a line on the label. 
I've never had any bad, bad ones that I couldn't make work, hmm. but they just fell They just fell a little bit outside of my personal spec, but I'll get to that kind of at the end. I usually end up getting them to come in once I start knock tuning and okay. doing some other stuff. So, so once I get that done, if I'm going to shoot every bear shaft through paper, obviously I won't fletch. I will put in the, the points inserts and I'll get that dialed. Then I'll go to paper. And as far as paper goes, here's my thing. When everyone goes up, oh, got a bold hole through paper. I'll be like, at what distance? So for go? me, um, I, it would probably be about nine feet to six feet. Seven yards. That far away. That's where your tear is the worst. Really? Yes. I did not know that. You can have a bullet hole at six feet and you not have a bullet hole at seven yards. I saw a video one time and I want to say it was Dave Cousins, but you probably know the video where the guy says um, it close to the paper tells you about your bow farther away from the paper tells you about your arrow. And he's a professional archer. He shoots at two different ranges through mm -hmm. paper. Do you know who I'm referring to? I don't, but he, he's not wrong. Um, but I prefer to, to, I, I build my bullets for how I build my bullets. And then I tune the, the machine, which is the bow to, to shoot that bullet, how I want. Very rarely have I ran into a situation where, um, a twist in a cable here or there or shim in a cam here or there uh, doesn't work more effectively than cutting a quarter of an inch or a half inch off of an arrow. Hmm. That's just what's worked for me. Everybody has different methods. I'm not saying that that doesn't work, um, but that's not how I do it. Um, I build the bullet to be exactly what I want. Um, and I go from there. I will, you know, like of course, 15 years ago. Yeah. I built up freaking, Ooh, 16 arrows, four of them with one grain point and four of them with another and four with the same point, but a half inch shorter. I built a whole bunch of variations and then just mixed them all up and stood there shooting in Klamath Falls at a hundred yards for like five hours. Hmm. And so I've kind of gotten to the point now where I pretty much just know where it needs to be. You know, like when someone messages me and goes, I got some 2712s. What do I do? My draw length is this and my poundage is this. And I'm like, 31 and a half inches, 250 up front, four inch vein. You're like, oh, <laughs> is 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 that a good build for me? What do you do? And I'm like, nah, dude, that's what everybody does. Steve Anderson has borrowed Mikey Slosher's 2712s and they're built the exact same. Really? That is the pro build. Some guys may run, what's up, doggy dog? <laughs> um, you have a dog behind you, by the way. Yeah, yeah. There's uh, there's two more back there too. <laughs> and so, um, but that is just the most common build. Some people run more point weight. This is for a 2712 folks, not a carbon. Um, and so I will then go to paper, but seven yards is where your tear is the worst. So a lot of people will be like, well, I got a perfect bullet hole through paper. Well, where at? Well, right in front of the paper. Cool. Step back to seven yards. And then they're like, what? Well, that's where your tear is the worst. Good to so know. If you, if you get a bullet hole through paper at seven yards, you're going to have a bullet hole through paper the entire way. And that's just what it is. And so, um, so I will generally do that and I'll shoot them all through paper, not necessarily to tune for a bullet hole, but I will then rotate knocks to make sure they all tear the same, whether it's a, you know, generally I come close anyway, but if it's a little, if it's a little high left tear, I don't care at this point, I just shoot them all until they all tear the same and I'll rotate until they tear the same. Then I'll go fletch, leave one bare shaft. And so then I'll come back and I'll take the bare shaft and I will generally tune it at seven yards till I have a pretty decent tear. Then I'll go to the range. I'll side in at 20 yards with a fletch shaft 
and then I'll shoot that bare shaft at 20. And it's for me, it usually ends up, it usually ends up decently low right. That's just, it's a little bit too much of a high, high left tear, but, but here's the thing. You can have a bullet hole through paper at seven yards with a bear shaft and that bear shaft might still not hit the middle at 20. You can adjust that bear shaft to hit the middle at 20 and go back to paper at seven yards and still have a bullet hole. Hmm. So, so I, so at what point are you um, worried about the angle of the, of the, cause a lot of guys um, and, I, and I did this year where I just shot into a Reinhardt and one fletched one and then just, Got you know say let's just say and for guys I'm pointing in two different slightly different angles and that's mm -hmm. the way that the arrows are going in. Mm -hmm. Are you are you doing that process at all? Like comparing your broad your bear shafts to a fletched and then oh getting, yes absolutely okay. it needs to be in the target straight right correct. I didn't no, know if no you ever I don't know I didn't know if that was part of your process too or if that if you had already taken care of that in your last step. Yeah no so so what I'll do is like let's say that I have a a low right bear shaft, which is going to be indicative of a high, high left tear, but I still have a bullet hole through paper, but my bear shaft hits low, right? So the paper is not showing you, hence the macro. Mm -hmm. It's not showing you that the bullet hole will be through paper, but you can still not have a bear shaft in the middle, hence the micro. So then I will tune the bear shaft to be in the middle. And what I will do is I'll generally work on the up and down first. I'll move my rest up and down until my bear shaft is in line with my fletched. Okay. Then I'll work on the, on the right and left because that's going to be a little bit more uh, in, in depth, whether it's cause I'll usually set my, on the PSCs, I'll set my center shot at about three quarters of an inch on the Hoyts about 13 sixteenths. And I won't move that rest again until I get outdoors to line tune. You said a PSC three quarters of an inch. Okay, because that's, that's about right where I was this year, and I started off at um, seven eighths, um, and then I just kept getting farther inside, and I was like, okay, and then finally where I ended up, it was it was definitely pretty inside. Right, and so so that's where I set center shot, which generally speaking is going to be right down the pipe, um, and then from there, obviously with the evolve cam system, you just I will old school shim cams. So once I get my height where I want it uh, with the rest, um, then I will address the left and right. So, so if I get it up and I have an arrow that is um, point three inches right and the knock is left, um, basically that's telling me that it's a left tear. So um, I'll just look at where the cam spacing is, press the bow, pull out the cams, and I will just shim that cam over a little bit, maybe 20, 30 thou. Um, so if it's tearing to the left, I move the string to the left and 20, 30 thou then generally I will have a dead straight on shaft and it's going to be pretty goddamn close to the other one. That's pretty sweet. Okay. And that's because then what you're doing, in my opinion, everybody does it different, but in my opinion, um, I am wanting to tune the bow to mechanically deliver the arrow as mechanically good as possible. And the analogy I use there is if you're driving your truck down the street and it's pulling to the left, you can get out and take air out of the right front tire so it drives straight. <laughs> but did you fix it? No. No. And that's what moving the arrow rest is. For me, you're putting a Band-Aid on the bow, delivering the arrow not mechanically efficiently. And that's probably the most common way to, to tune a bow for, for people out there. And I guess you, technically you're masking a problem, but a lot of guys will just um, 
yoke tune it and then micro with the rest and that's how they tune it sorry say that again so a lot of guys around here locally um will basically set center shot and then yoke tune from there and then make their final adjustments with their rest yeah if if you have a hoyt or a bow that right. that has yokes um yeah generally speaking i will use the I won't, I'll, I'll shim the bottom cam if the yokes don't make it as responsive as I need it. But generally speaking, if you have a Hoyt, yeah, I will shim over the bottom cam and then use the yokes to, to get the bear shaft where I want it. Absolutely. Okay. And that, that new, that new Bowtech, um, I'd love to hear, cause I'm a big fan of that new Bowtech's, um, cam, uh, being able to just move over the cam. What's your thoughts on that? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's no different than, old school shims. It's no different than the Matthews top hat system. The whole idea is to be able to move the cam left or right to, to mechanically deliver the arrow functionally as good as it can. Hmm. Um, I don't have a ton of experience, you know, hands-on with that system, but the idea is all the same. Everybody's just making their own version of a mousetrap. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's, you know, it's got a lot of components to it. Do I hear about a lot of failures? No, not really. And so whether you're going to press the bow and use shims, whether you're going to use a Matthews top hat system, whether you're going to use Hoyt's yokes, whether you're going to use Bowtex um, drive, you know, the cam that drives left or right, it's all doing the same thing. And so as long as it does what it's supposed to do and it doesn't fail or move, then that's all that matters. Right. Um, I mean, that is, that is the bottom line. You can get as fancy as you want, but as long as it doesn't, come loose or fail or move when you're done, then Gucci. I mean, it's like, um, the, the LAS system that, that PSE had for a while, the limb alignment deal where the pocket moved, mm. you could literally sh move the pocket. Well, that worked great until they combined it with the evolve cam system. And this was something that I literally discovered during a live feed, like a moron <laughs> is if you have a floating yoke system, like the evolve cam, having a limb pocket that moves doesn't do you any good. It'll move your point of impact, but the, but the evolve cam system is self-centering. <laughs> so those two technologies don't mix. Is that why they re did they rebrand that as the, the new, uh, sure. Or I forget what the limb pocket thing is, but they labeled it. It's got a special margin. wedge lock wedge lock. Yeah. Well, the wedge lock. No, that's the, that's the lockdown system for, for, for the entire pocket system. If you want to adjust it, uh, with in the other way. So no, the, the, the LAS is pretty much going to be gone because the evolve cam system, it doesn't, it doesn't do what it did it great on the previous cam system where you had yokes hmm. because then, then you could move it and it would literally change the tune. Now with the evolve cam system, which is probably, probably the best cam system on the market right now. It's in my, my favorite. Yeah. I'm it's, shooting one it's, right now. It's unbelievable, mm -hmm. but the LAS system is not needed. <laughs> it's not needed. So now you have the ability to shim the cams one time you're done and the cams remain self centering. So for me, it doesn't really matter what system it is that's going to sh shift the cams, whether it's a drive system like the Bowtech or top hat or regular shims like PSE. I, I don't care. Um, I am more of a simplistic guy. Um, I prefer something that has way less moving parts, but that's not to say that that some of those more fancier systems aren't good as well. So, 
So once I get the bear shaft where I want it, um, which is close to the middle, not spec, you know, I don't need it shooting inside out super X's because I already know I'm not going to leave it there. Mm -hmm. That's just what it is. So then for outdoors and hunting, I will then step outside and line tune. And for that, I'll basically take a piece of cardboard, put a piece of electrical tape perfectly across it, put it on my target. I'll do the up and down first. I'll put a level on it so that it's perfectly straight. I'll step back to a hundred and I will literally just shoot along that line. I don't care about my group left and right. I don't care about it at all. All I care about is I want all of those arrows all on a line so I can set one arrow across all of them. And basically what happens is, is you just move your arrow rest mic. I mean like a 16th of a turn up and down. You got to pick one because generally you'll shoot and your arrows will be, you know, two, three inches in an up and down group. And people are like, Ooh, at a hundred, that's great. <laughs> well, because you're not focusing on shooting a group and because you're not focusing on shooting left and right, you only focus on shooting the up and down portion and you would be shocked how good you can shoot. Now my group may be 14 inches left and right, but you can literally take an arrow and lay it on all those and it'll touch every arrow when I'm done. Hmm. That's what I'm looking for. Then I will rotate the cardboard to where it's up and down and that same tape line. And I'm not trying to hit the tape. Actually, I make sure I don't hit the tape because then I got to replace the tape. It's not about hitting the tape. It's about getting all the arrows on a, on, on, on a line. Then I'll, then I'll turn it. So it's up and down and I'll do the exact same thing at hundred yards. And then I'll move my arrow rest left and right until all those arrows are straight up and down. That's line tuning. Then I will go back and I'll recite in at 100 because that's kind of important. Shooting at a dot until I get sighted back in. Then, and here, here's the important part, when I go hunting or when I go um, to a tournament or anything, I bring one bare shaft and here's why. When I'm done line tuning, I will go back to usually about 25 yards and I will shoot that bare shaft and see where it goes. And it won't be in the middle. It'll usually be, for me, it'll usually be about half to three quarters of an inch low right. Really? At about 4.30, sometimes 5 o'clock. Half inch maybe, three quarters of an inch tops. That is the most precise tune that bow will ever have. So I'll take a picture of it on my phone and I'll have the date stamp on there. So if I go to a tournament or like last year, if I go hunting in Alaska, uh, two years ago, I go hunting in Alaska and eat shit because I'm not made for walking in the tundra. And I am concerned. So if I'm at a tournament and it's not shooting as good as I think, or I fall like I did in Alaska, I'll take that bear shaft. I'll go to 25 yards and I will shoot at something. And if that bear shaft is not in the same orientation as it was in the picture from my fletch shaft, I know something on my bow has changed. Hmm. It's a reference. That makes a lot of sense. There, there was a video I wanted to pick your brain about where Jesse Broadwater was talking about, um, I think he might have been showing off, but he was uh, shooting 100 yards and he uh, was talking about bear shaft tuning or in, in something and he basically took something and he shaved each vein off to where it was just you could just see the color of the vein on the shaft and he put it back on his arrow and he just punched a bullseye at 100 and it was like, holy shit, you didn't even have a vein. Right. Um, technically, um, it, it, at what point do people need to be that good? And what point is, is that just overkill? 
Well, I actually did that last year to prove a point with my hunting bow. I shot a bear. Sh- I was line tuning mm-hmm. and I shot a bear shaft at a hundred and it literally hit on the exact same plane as all my hmm. fletched arrows. Now I didn't leave it there, but I did it just to prove a point. Um, that is, that is so overkill. It's not even <laughs> funny. And here's why, because generally speaking, that is not going to be the most forgiving tune. But the bigger factor is 99%. I'm not saying I'm anything special and I'm most certainly not Jesse Broadwater is the quality of the shot you have to make with a bear shaft at a hundred is pristine. Like to say you have to make an inside out Vegas X type shot is an understatement. It is incredibly difficult to make that good of a shot for a bear shaft to perform at a hundred yards. There can be no wind. You can't have any bobbles in your hold. You can't have any issues whatsoever with your shot execution. It has to be a, a literally a perfect shot because a bear shaft will amplify any movement you have. It'll amplify a little bob at the end and your bear shaft will miss by a foot and a half. So you have to act, you have to perform and execute an absolutely unbelievable shot at that distance. And to be honest, it's just not necessary. Some of us do it because it's fun. Uh, you know, it keeps things interesting to do it, to see if we can do it. Like when I did it with my hunting bow last year, I did line tune for a bear shaft at a hundred. Hmm. However, what ended up happening was uh, in the interim distances, um, I found that I had a little bit up and right because what ended up happening was, is my rest had to be a little too high to maximize overall performance in order to get the bear shaft to do what I wanted it to do at a hundred. Now that wasn't a hunting application, but I just did it to show I could just to show people it's possible. At what point are you building an arrow that can do that for FOC and all that stuff? I'd be curious to hear your, your thought on all that stuff. Cause a lot of guys are saying, Oh, well you could do that with a really super high FOC arrow and stuff like that. But I, I'd like to hear your thoughts on that. Um, actually that is a hundred. That's no, if you go too high in FOC, you're not going to be able to do that. Because your back's going to blow around too much? Yeah, you're, you're just not going to be able to do that. Um, look, FOC is great. FOC is fine. But for those for those of us that shoot and have shot professionally, for you think Levi Morgan runs 30% FOC? You think anybody, you think Randy Ulmer does that? You think, no. No one does that except for people that want to intentionally shoot at shoulder bones or people who want to have some sort of other label to hold on to. And I'm not saying you dude, shoot 50% FOC for all I give a shit. I'm just, <laughs> I'm just telling you, don't come at me and say that it's more accurate than any other build because you're full of shit. Mm-hmm. And so when when I go to build a tournament arrow, I've been doing this so long. I, dude, I haven't measured FOC in over 10 years. Uh, why would I need to do that? That's I already know. I already know. When I build a target arrow, you know, like when Easton came out with the 140 grain tungstens, everyone's like, oh, 140 is going to be the shit. Uh, I got some. I threw some in. I tuned them up, and they shot worse. Really? Just like they did for Steve Anderson. They didn't shoot better for me, so I went back to 120s. Hmm. So will I ever try that again? 
Nope. <laughs> so when you talk about a hunting, hunting arrow, I've been, I've, I tested this so long ago. I don't need to mess with it anymore. I shoot a 31 inch 260 axis with a, a 75 grain insert and a hundred grain broadhead hmm. and three uh, hybrid 2.6 or max stealth veins with one degree in the Fletch three jig and they pound hole. I'm glad to they, hear you say one degree. Cause I've shot like a slight offset one degree for uh, 10 years. I just, it's just whatever. I just copied whatever you could buy, you know, grabbing an Easton off the shelf that was pre-fledged mm-hmm. and right. they're always just slightly angled. Right. right. Um, and so that's just kind of what I copied and I'm starting to shoot a little bit more helical just to play around and stuff, but I've never absolutely needed more helical um, to get my broadheads to shoot. And some right. of these guys are just preaching helical like no other mother. And I'm just like, I don't choose your lane, I guess, but well, right. And how good's your bow tuned? Hmm. May, maybe you need all that. Maybe you need all that extra vein spin on there to hide a shitty tune. Hmm. Who knows? I'm not saying that's a reason, but I can tell you that I have fletched up years and years ago. I fletched up a dozen arrows with three different offsets and helicals on them and shot at a hundred yards all day long. And guess which performed the best time after time after time. One degree. About one degree. So, okay. And in the target world, you can actually get into a phenomenon called parachuting. Yeah. <laughs> I've read where, into that. Yeah. Where if you have too much spin on the back, the back's trying to slow down faster than the front. And after about 65, 70 yards, the back of your arrow starts to make a loop and your groups open up. Oh yeah. Back when I, um, this is a few years ago, I was shooting a, uh, Halon six and I was shooting, um, I was trying to get on the map and do stupid stuff. And I was shooting for the <laughs> uh, longest record and, uh, doing it officially and everything. And I was trying different arrows and different FOCs and different veins and the veins made the biggest difference. Um, and between a low profile vein and a regular, just a regular blazer vein that you get when you buy an axis, it was 15 yards difference. Uh, Mm -hmm. the low profiles would go, I was getting an actual, and the, and the angle was slightly different on those as well. Yeah. Drag, drag plays a huge role. I mean, and, and it depends what broadhead you're shooting. Like for for my arrow, 31 into 31 inch, 260 axis, 175. I've, and with just three, Max Stealth or hybrid 26 is with one degree. I won't shoot a fixed blade broadhead at the same dot at 80. Really? Because I'm lazy <laughs> and I don't like to fix shit. Yeah. I'm not, I have did it. I actually went last year, the year before when I was doing all that tuning outdoors, I did that. Just, I'm like, oh, how, nothing's going to happen. I ruined an arrow. <laughs> I was so pissed. I'm like, this is what I get. This is what I get. This is karma. It's what I get. It's the universe telling me that you're a jackass and you should have listened to what you preach. Cause I preach, Hey, if your stuff's shooting good and you're a good shooter, don't shoot broadheads at, for group. Cause you're stupid. Right. Now the arrow companies and the vein companies, thank you for your business. But, and I did it and literally it bit me in the <laughs> ass instantly. And literally split the back of an arrow. I was so pissed off. And so, so whether, you you know, if you're shooting a mechanical, oh, dude, Katie, bar the doors, man. You, it's, (laughs) it's literally going to be 
you're, it's going to shoot better than, than anything you can imagine. But um, for me, there's been times that I literally believe that my 260 access with those three veins and a total of 175 grams up front doesn't shoot as good or better than my X10s outdoors. Hmm. Heavy as shit. It's freaking almost 600 grains doing 278, 280. Jesus. Dude, pound hole. Pound, find hole, pound it. It absolutely strokes. And so I've never calculated FOC. I don't know what the kinetic energy is. I don't know what the momentum <laughs> calculator some bitch is. What I know is this. My damn near 600 grain arrow hitting any living creature at almost 280 feet per second, although that's out of the bow, so don't send all your hate mail to Garrett. <laughs> um, that arrow is going to work for any living creature other than African Cape Buffalo and whatnot. Well, I can tell you my buddy shoots a very similar setup to that. Um, and I'm not sure what broadhead, um, I think he was using an iron wheels, but, and he went through a moose at 90 this year and it, the fletchings were the caught, I think on the, uh, so it was a hard pass through, but that was a right. moose yep. and that's pretty much your setup. <laughs> yes, exactly. And look, iron wheels are an amazing head. That's what I used when I went, I didn't get a chance to shoot at a moose up in Alaska. Um, cause I didn't have a 200 yard pin and it got 70 degrees on us, but mm. the iron wheels impressed me more than you could ever imagine because um i'm i'm harsh on things when it comes to my expectations um you know a lot of people are like well you just got to put them on then you got to tune them and you got to make sure they this you got to make i'm out i'm out sorry dude if you're paying twenty dollars a god dang broadhead you shouldn't have to do shit but tune your bow and make sure your arrows are built properly Right. I'm sorry. So for me, like when I step outside my back door onto my concrete, it's 85 yards to my bail. Not that's not by accident. <laughs> so when I step out there, like years ago, uh, Dale Perry had the original grave diggers. I was given a used one and I just took out a field point, screw in the grave digger and hit the dot at 85. Hmm. I was like, holy shit, that's impressive. Iron wheels. I literally did the same thing. I got them. I just literally screwed one on. Hey, look, if I can't screw on that broadhead to my tuned bow and my tuned arrows and not have to change everything to accommodate the head, then it's the wrong head. That's just my opinion. And I know there's probably fanboys out there that are like, well, that's not fair. Then don't tell me how good your broadheads are. If I can't, because I'm going to, I will say this, my hunting bow and my arrows are probably tuned better than most. That's just being honest. Yeah, it's fair to say. So, And so if I can't screw on a broadhead that's that expensive and that high end and it not hit where I relatively need it to hit, then you need to change your marketing. Just to be honest, don't make claims you can't back up. Don't write checks your ass can't cash. And so I screwed on the iron wheel and I stepped out on the back porch or, you know, the back patio and I... I dialed the site down to 85 and I did let down cause this was a cold bore. So <laughs> it takes the big rig time to get up to speed. Um, and I let down once drew back and the pin, the pin settled six o'clock X ish and that shot broke. And I, that arrow literally only missed the bottom of that dot by about an inch. Hmm. 
So left and right was spectacular. And as far as I'm concerned, that arrow only hit about an inch and a half because I don't shoot at an 80 yard dot at 85. I shoot at a 50 yard dot at 85. So um, that arrow literally only hit an inch to an inch and a half lower than what I would have expected. Like with my field points, not other. And I was like, I walked down there and I was like, all right, that'll work. Went back in the house, changed over to iron wheels. And then I was a smart ass. And that's when I ruined an arrow. Oh. <laughs> right. But, but that, you know, and that is, that's just my personal expectation. So whether it's a broadhead or strings or a bow or anything like that, if, if you're going to make claims, um, then I am going to not like, I'm going to publicly flog anybody, although I've been known to do that. Um, <laughs> I'm going to hold your marketing to the fire. And if, if you tell me how good your broadheads are and they fly like peel field points and this, that, and the other, when I put them in my rig, knowing how good my rig is tuned, I better not have to change a whole lot. Well, to me, when you, when you're getting broadheads to shoot that, I mean, cause I, I'm, I imagine you shoot a ton of different stuff too, you know, testing stuff out. It seems to be that tells me more about your your tune than it does the broadhead because it seems like most broadheads nowadays that I've shot anyways, if my if my shit's tuned and I'm doing my job, it typically does go where it needs to go. How often are you getting ones to deviate? <laughs> Quite often, <laughs> really, because uh, <laughs> there's let's, let's just say let's just say because I don't want to put anybody on blast. That's fine, but I will just say that there's at least half that don't oh yes. really yes like um you know obviously dale perry created grave digger but when when he sold they outsourced that to china those no longer shoot the way that they did just being honest with you um dale's new broadheads evolution outdoors they do um levi morgan's schwackers and i know a lot of people are like for some reason, I don't know why people hate on Schwacker so much, but whatever. Um, I was, I had no problems screwing on a Schwacker. Um, now out here on the left coast, expandables, I don't care. Um, if you were to tell me, Greg, you have to pick one broadhead to shoot forever, it, I would probably shoot like a four blade slick tricks or a four blade whack hmm. But I get to shoot all kinds of other stuff. So I'm only saying that if you were to like, put me on an island and be like, you get one broadhead. Really? That's what it would be. Um, but what would be your reason yeah. for choosing those? You just like the four blade. I like the four blade. They are easily serviceable. They have a short ferrule. Yeah. Um, I like that. And so I literally could get by with, with, with that head for lots of reasons. Would you choose those over? Well, obviously you would, cause you didn't mention it, but the tooth of the arrow, is that because they're not replaceable bladed or? Yeah. 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 I'm, I'm, I'm not a, I'm not a huge fan of non-serviceable blades. Now don't get me wrong, folks. We're talking about like survival <laughs> an island type stuff here. So that's what I'm talking about. Um, there's a lot of, you know, for normal hunting applications, I'm just saying that about half of the ones that I've ever tested don't that's do crazy what they, what I think they should do. But the original grave diggers did when they outsourced them to China, they didn't Dale's new ones. The evolution outdoors do, um, the Schwackers did, um, the, uh, what's the, what's the high end rage one? Um, tripan that one, that one did. Um, 
the uh, the G5 expandable did pretty well. Um, I wasn't horribly upset with those. And look, I'm I'm not doing blade opening test people. I'm not doing any of that shit. So don't send me emails about. Well, I lost an animal. I did that. <laughs> yeah, I don't I don't care about all that. That's not what I'm, I'm talking. I'm talking just thread that bitch onto my arrow and send it. And where does it hit? That's all I'm talking about. So hmm. don't easy on the easy. So, <laughs> but there have been a lot of them that, dude, I had some that were expensive. I screwed it on. I shoot a 32, 32 inch Reinhardt brick wall and I almost missed it. Really? At 85. Almost missed it. It hung foam, but not a lot of it. So what is your acceptable deviation at that far away for a broadhead to pass its muster for you, for your expectations? If it's three inches off for paper plate, paper plate. So eight with inside of eight inch or seven inch plate. Yep. Yep. If, if I, if I screw on a broadhead in my rig and I fire a decent shot, look, if, if I make a shitty shot, I literally go pull the arrow and do it again. I don't even care where it hit. Um, I mean, even if it hits in the middle and I know I made a shitty shot, I'm like, nope, that's not, that's not a legit, no. It's not fair. Um, and so, but for me, when I shoot at those, um, I pay attention, uh, I pay attention to left and right more than anything. Um, if it goes a little high or a little low, that I don't, I don't mind that because that means the arrows or the broadhead is generally constant. It's concentric and it, and it seeded on the in the system concentrically. So left and right, it's not going to be an issue. But for me, when I do that, I will generally put a, you know, I'll take a, I will take a mental note of what a paper plate looks like. And if I blind cold bore shoot a new broadhead in my rig and it hits within a paper plate of that 50 yard dot at 80, I will, I will take and take and take a look at it. Um, That's cool. The ones that don't, don't. <laughs> and I mean, don't. Um, and the good ones, it's just me, and I don't know why, but generally speaking, when I get to the good ones, maybe it's just my tune. I don't know exactly what it is, but the ones that do well, the Schwackers, the Iron Wills, Dale's new ones, Evolution Outdoors, they'll generally just hit a little low for me. And that's, I was going to say, that's what I found. It seems like, um, like I used to shoot mine uh, back when I had my, my Synergy. I was testing all sorts of broadheads, and it didn't matter what I screwed on there. Um, but it seemed like the, at about 80 to 90, I'd be about two inches low mm -hmm. and it just, and they were all pretty unified and I right. just couldn't, I was like, must be drag or something. I don't know. That's, that's what I chalk it up to. Um, you know, like the iron will being as big as it is with solid blades, it blew me away. I'm like, I was thinking aerodynamically, uh, wind resistance and all that, it would drag down more, but it just didn't. Um, the Schwacker, there's not a lot there. It did well. Um, the G5 is way shorter than the Schwacker. It did well. They hit almost the same spot. So I think that there's a lot of factors to it. Hmm. Um, but to be honest, when you get to that point, I, I generally don't question it. I don't say, well, the Schwacker is a little longer and the Evolution Outdoors is a little shorter and the G5 is a little shorter even. That, that's going to account for this half inch. I'm not that good a shot. So <laughs> I'm not even, I'm not even, for me, it's about keeping everything relative. Okay. And if I'm, you know, if I make that good shot and it's in my allowable thing, or if it goes like an inch and a half straight low, that's a massive win for me. There's been two times. Have you had much experience shooting and testing the single bevels out there? 
Not a lot. Because there's been twice now on two different bow setups and two completely different tunes where a 45, they would shoot and kill it, but a vertical or horizontal, I I don't know. But they all had to be 45, and and I haven't talked to anybody that can tell me why I was experiencing that. Yeah, I mean, <clears throat> I don't know. Um, I would suspect that it has a lot to do with with uh, how the arrow was initially delivered out of the bow. Um, I, that's kind of what I was thinking. I was thinking that um, with the, with the uh, with the arrow kind of doing the thing and 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 getting maybe wind catching the broadhead. I don't know. I I honestly couldn't tell you. Well, the the archer's paradox is a real right. thing. Right, and so obviously, if you're shooting shooting with a, a D loop and a rest, you're going to be paradoxing up and down. Um, and so, depending on how that how that broadhead seats in the air as it starts to be delivered, it can influence things. Um, I've never really with the four blades. Now, back in the day, I would I would take the four blade and I would fetch fletch them four fletch, and I would index the four blades with the fletches and. I could stand there at 125 yards and hit a paper plate all day long with those. It was ridiculous. That's funny. I, I always used to, um, and basically match my blades blades to my veins and stuff. And uh-huh. I used to do that. Now it's my turn. Uh-huh. That's my, that's my watch doing it though. <laughs> uh-huh. uh, but, uh, anyways, and, and anymore, it's just screw them on and go. I used to be way too OCD with it, but right. Well, and, and so much of it comes down to shot quality shot execution and situational awareness. And, you know, let's be honest, what, you know, we're all talking about shooting shit at 85 and a hundred. And yes, I, I shot a scimitar at a hundred, my mule deer, I intentionally stopped at 88 yards and pictured myself in Redding shooting the oak herd. (laughs) But dude, my bison was at 35 yards and the majority of shots out there are generally under, under 40. Like mathematically, if you add in whitetails, the average shot distance is like 23 yards in the whole country. Hmm. So it's really about what you're doing. If I go, you know, if I go back to hunt whitetails, I still do the same thing. I'm not going to shoot over 40 yards. Yeah. In Alabama. Just, yeah. I wouldn't go over 30. We were hunting crackheads over there. It was freaking insane. <laughs> I right. had one jump the string at 25 and I spined her. It's like I, I aimed low on your heart. Like I aimed where I was told, you know, bottom of the belly, mm-hmm. just low, low, low heart. And she still spined. And I'm like, what the hell? I'm like, you couldn't shoot right. one of these things at 40 yards. Right. Well, and that's a podcast for a whole nother time. Well, that has a lot to do with the veins you're using um, because any – you know, look, everyone goes, Oh, they jumped the string. No, they don't. That's bullshit. They don't jump the string. They hear the arrow coming. See, I want to see studies done on that. How, do you have anything on that? And that, that's a, another podcast. I'm sure. I, yeah. I have a $400, uh, di- digital, uh, decibel meter that just came in this week. Mm-hmm. So I will be actually renting a big building here to do it. But if you want to see a, a in the field, Tesco, I believe it's DCA Custom Arrows. Yeah. Um, he bet. actually did it. Okay. And he just put a microphone down on the target. But, dude, you hear veins coming like a Mack truck. And so if you're shooting a two-inch high-profile vein, whether it's a bla- – I'm just going to say this out loud. Whether it's a Blazer, an AAE Max Hunter, any – listen to the – any, A-N-Y, any 
two inch high profile vein is loud period. That's it. They're loud. They're loud. They're the loudest vein on the market, regardless of what manufacturer it is. I'm not, you know, I'm not, no, AAE's two inch max hunter is loud. Just like the blazer is. That's it. It's a fact. So it's a matter of the pocketed. It, it's, it's a matter of the size of the air pocket, the, the slope, how quick it drops off on the back, all of it. It's loud. Hmm. So if you go look at the, I believe it's DCA custom arrows and his video, the AAE max stealth was hands down the quietest vein period. Um, the next one was attack vein. And then you go down the list, but the most popular vein in the hunting world right now is the loudest vein. And if you really want to see how loud it is, not behind the target people don't, well, I've done stupid. it. We have a plywood. Yep. We stand off to the side and you shoot past it. Yep. And, and you can hear it. Yeah. Shoom. Yeah, absolutely. So loud. if, if you can hear it coming and you're a human and we have probably some of the slowest reaction times in nature, if you don't believe that, just go on some of the internet pages now showing stupid people doing stupid <laughs> things. Um, but if you, th if we can hear them coming and we can in mentally, we can react like, Oh, here it comes. Oh, there it is. Oh, here it comes. Oh, there it is. Imagine what an animal is doing. Right. They're hearing the arrow coming. That's what they're hearing. So the quieter your arrow, the more lethal you're going to be. And that's just what it is. Hmm. I, I want to see a study done. Um, and I think there's a guy ranch for, he might've done this study already, but he, uh, he he's does heavy arrow builds and stuff like that, but I want to see somebody actually document that shoots a shit ton of animals using mm. high, uh, a very loud vein and then a very quiet vein and see how often the animals are reacting or, or, or jumping and, and the success rate and just put a study together with that. Cause I'd really love to see some, some data on that. I think that would be awesome. Well, I've been, I've been working with a couple of guys, in the hunting industry the last three or four years that have done that. Greg Ritz and Lee Lakoski. I don't know if you've ever heard of them. Mm -hmm. um, Lee Lakoski's been around a bit and Greg Ritz is kind of successful as well. And they've literally taken their video footage from prior vein builds and they've literally put lines on the screen to measure drop hmm. of the animal. Mm -hmm. And look, they're, they're shooting extremely quiet bows. Bows are not an issue here. So this is not 20 years ago when the, everything sounded like a two by four, but you know, two, two by four slapping together. But now the bows are so quiet, the bows are not an issue. And they're literally seen on video now that they've switched over to quieter veins and quieter arrow builds, they are seeing white tails. Now, mind you, these guys aren't hunting stupid in the rut. One and a half year olds, <laughs> they're hunting 180 to two inch, uh, 180 to 220 inch studs mm -hmm. who are not stupid and they didn't get that big for no reason. And they are dropping significantly less on film measured than they were with prior veins that they were using. Really? Yeah. So I've been having these conversations with people for quite a while. So, you know, that's, uh, that's what it is. And there are some, you know, there are some companies that don't want to really acknowledge that because they'll have to change their, change the game. And right, you know, well, if, if there's, 
Uh, yeah, if, I mean, if that's been done, I would absolutely look at changing my vein setup because to me that would just make it a more. And if I can get the 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 flight and everything that I like and that I need out of a quieter vein, why wouldn't you do that? It just doesn't right. even make sense. And and there are, I know you work for A&E. We got I got to get going here soon. I'm sure you do too. So I can see it's dark in your uh, windows there. <laughs> it was light when we started. I think. Um, I. I know you uh, have veins that you have to use a primer pen and all that stuff. I'm not a big fan of having to buy extra shit to, to use mm-hmm. extra shit. So do you have anything that is a low profile that you can just use um, a glue and, and just be good to go? Or uh, Absolutely. I mean, walk, walk me through that because I, I, I like the iron wheels, but I don't like having to protect them from rust. Like I, right. I, I don't, I'm not that kind of consumer. I'm just, the, I'm just the wrong guy for that. Absolutely. And so, so the reason for that, and once again, this is regardless of manufacturer mm-hmm. period. So everyone understand that this, it doesn't matter what manufacturer it is. The urethane content of the vein determines the adhesion process. Our max veins, flex fletch veins, tack veins, bunches of veins out there have a high urethane content because that makes the veins stiffer. Well, the higher the urethane content, you have to use a primer pen because you can't open up the pores of the urethane to accept adhesion without a primer pen. So that's why lots of vein companies out there, you have to use a primer pen on because of the urethane content of the vein. So there's Copy. that. Okay. Yes. I'm glad so, I did not know that. I've always wondered. I'm like, I thought it was just too stiff or something. Nope. So it's, it's, it's the material. Okay. So, for, so at, at AAE, we have our material we've been using for like 45 years called the elite plastifletch material. And so we have the EP line, which is everything we make for Easton and, and all kinds of stuff. And it's a, it's a lick and stick material. And so it is, uh, it comes from the factory with a pre-applied activator. So you don't have to prep the vein in any kind of way, but that is a lighter, uh, less stiff vein. So what we did a couple of years ago was we started, started to look at it and say, okay, how can we use our elite plastifletch quote unquote lick and stick material to create a vein that is going to dynamically perform like the higher urethane veins. And what we did was we started working on the, 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 um, a technology called base dynamics. And what that is, is when the, when the, and it, those veins are called hybrids, it's called the hybrid vein. It's a lick and stick. You don't have to prep the vein at all. It comes with a pre-applied, pre-applied activator from the factory. You just put, put the glue on, stick it. You're good. Hmm. But, the, the base dynamics technology is basically what we did is we had started to address the relationship between the base of the vein and the body of the vein and how that relationship dynamically affects the stiffness of the vein. Meaning for pretty much every company out there, the base of the vein is to hold it onto the arrow and then the body of the vein does what the body of the vein does. Well, we started looking at that correlation, came up with base dynamics. So basically what happens is, is if you feel one of our max veins in your hand, you're like, that's pretty stiff. And then if you feel the exact same vein in our hybrid material, you're like, "Eh, this is a lot weaker. However, once you apply that hybrid vein to the arrow, that's when the base dynamics kicks in and that vein dynamically performs much, much stiffer than the material would generally allow. Hmm. So you can have the max material vein and the hybrid material vein and have veins that perform very, very close. So, so yes. I would want a hybrid is probably what you're saying. Correct. Absolutely. And it, if you do go with a less stiffer vein, 
you would probably need more surface area to make up for that lack of steering that you're losing? Um, generally speaking, yes. Um, a, a, a weaker vein is a louder vein. Uh, you're going to get more flutter. You're going to guess you're going to get less corrective action, uh, in a, in a shorter distance. So our max veins and our hybrid veins, uh, both have stabilization ridges on the veins. So if you feel the vein, it actually has ridges on right. it. Right. Yep. That's not for decoration. That's for rigidity. And that's for stability because it basically like the, fl why do people flute the barrel of a rifle? More cool surface area. Quicker. Yep. More surface area. So it cools quicker. So we've basically reverse fluted a vein. Now that vein has more surface area. Hmm. That makes sense. Makes a lot of well, sense. Huh? That's well, that's a, that's a, I, that's a whole nother <laughs> podcast I want to get into. Right. Cause I know we didn't even get to hit that, but I think we got about two hours. Yeah. Right at two hours of All good right, content. That'll lead us into another episode. If you're willing to come back on the show, man, I had a blast talking to you. You bet. Absolutely. buddy. anytime I appreciate you having me on and, uh, keep up the good work. Thanks. Well, you give some people, uh, the contact information, how they can find you a little bit of info, info on your podcast before we get off here. Absolutely. I mean, for, for those that, that want to follow me personally, it's for big GP on Instagram, uh, on Facebook, it's just Greg pool. I am maxed out on friends, which is shocking because <laughs> I'm a, I'm a giant asshole. Um, but, uh, you can follow me on there. I, I am going to start putting out more stuff on my athlete page, Bo junkie media on Instagram. It's just Bo junkie media, Bo junkie media on Facebook. It's the same. Uh, if you want to listen to the, to the Bo junkie media podcast, uh, you can find us on pretty much every damn platform there is for podcast. Um, Libsyn, Podbean, Stitcher, you pretty much name it, iTunes, all of that. We're on all of them. Um, and then, of course, if you want to find out more about the, the AAE veins, you can just check out uh, uh, ArizonaArchery.com. Awesome. Perfect. That's how we get down, son. Well, let's, uh, let's get you back on here uh, fairly soon because I want to continue this conversation, and, and I really do appreciate your time, man. Sounds good, brother. All right. See ya. All right. Bye. All right. That's this episode of the podcast. Thanks for tuning in. If you haven't yet, please check out the YouTube channel. Google my name or uh, search my name on Google, Garrett Weaver or On Point with Garrett Weaver. I'll pull right up. I've got two podcast channels, one for the podcast and then one um, that is just my name, Garrett Weaver, that does all the other uh, hunting related content. So uh, there is two channels there. And if you guys want to listen to the podcast on YouTube, just type in the On Point with Garrett Weaver one. And then for all bow hunting, other related content, just type in Garrett Weaver. Um, and outside of that, appreciate you listening. If you want, check out Greg's uh, Instagram, Bow Junkie Media. Um, Greg pulls his name and uh, just a lot of great content there. Great guy. And I look forward to having him back on the show. So outside of that, appreciate you listening. Please tune into the next one and I'll see you at the next one. Bye.